Good evening. It is good to see each one of you. If you're a guest, we're glad that you're here. If you want to be opening your Bibles, we're going to read just a couple of verses out of 2 Thessalonians, one out of 1 Thessalonians, but then we're going to spend most of our time tonight studying Matthew, the 25th chapter. And so either place you want to turn, uh, we'll be getting there in just a few moments. Uh, we want to say a big thank you to those of you that, that cooperate on a weekly Sunday night basis of going over to the simulcast and making room in the auditorium for uh, guests that would come in and, and just for others that would come in. And I know some Sunday nights... <clears throat> The tennis doesn't necessarily demand that, but the thing is we can't predict what those Sunday nights are. And uh, I know I, I passed through that area just a few moments ago and, and uh, there's a lot of good folks sitting over there uh, tonight. And we appreciate knowing that classes rotate in every Sunday night and, and what a blessing it is. Uh, I had a person say to me uh, just the other day, said, uh, it's really difficult to not get just a little bit mad when you walk in with your whole family and you can't sit together, you just kind of want to say, why, why, can't, why can't we sit together? And then that same person said, I know I shouldn't get mad about that. I know it shouldn't bother me, but it, it really at the moment bothers me. And then I try to check it and say, okay, that, that shouldn't make me angry. But it's nice to be able to try to create ways that, that if someone is walking in, that their family can sit together, they can always find a seat. When you think about in scripture, a mark of hospitality is whether or not you offer a seat to someone. That's James 2. That's Bible. And we want to always be hospitable folks. Speaking of hospitable folks, we want to remind our widows and widowers that you are invited to the melting pot holiday or Christmas party. It's going to be <clears throat> this Saturday, uh, which is the 10th, at 530 to 830. The food's provided. And there is... Uh, there are flyers available at Information Center that will tell you uh, all of the who, what, when, and where. Uh, it looks like that right there, and you can grab one of those, and you'll be in for a good treat. The Melting Pot always does a great job of uh, hosting those holiday get-togethers, and so uh, that'll be a lot of fun. You know, we are constantly reminded of how blessed we are. I've, I've been in two meetings this afternoon that, that were just from a lot of different angles. They were just reminders of how good God is to us. And with that uh, comes a lot of responsibility. And I, I want to encourage you to never take God's blessings for granted. As we even studied this morning, out of the heart of all of us ought to be this voice of thanksgiving to God. And let's be faithful stewards to Him and all that He gives to us. We've been studying in our Sunday morning Bible classes for almost a quarter now through First and Second Thessalonians. I noticed that, you notice this as we go through that there's a lot of misunderstanding on behalf of those of Thessalonica of what the second coming is going to be and they thought it should have already come and that it should have been a lot sooner and the result of that was not good. When you look at 2 Thessalonians, the second chapter in verse 1, he said, Now brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and gathering together to him, we ask you, to not be soon shaken in mind or troubled. And then he goes on to, to talk more about it. But what I want you to see there is just the realization that if we don't understand the second coming, the way God has taught it to us, that it can leave us shaken in mind and troubled. If I said to you, 
hey, nine o'clock tonight, the Lord's coming again. First thing you would say, no, he's coming as a thief in the night. You don't know that. But just pretend for a moment that didn't exist. And what if I could say to you, what if I could say to you, the Lord's coming tonight at nine o'clock. Would that leave you shaken in mind and troubled? Or as the entire Bible closes out, Lord, come quickly. Would you say nine o'clock tonight? Oh, this is great. I have lived my life for this. This is going to be the most awesome thing. The Lord is coming for us to take us into heaven. Oh, I wish it was eight o'clock, but we can wait till nine. W which way would you be? Scared or thankful? Back up to 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter. 1 Thessalonians, the fourth chapter, you remember verse 13. He begins talking about various aspects of the second coming of the Lord. But notice how he began that in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 13. But I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. In other words, what about those who die before the Lord comes again? And so he walks them through various aspects of the second coming to let them see that those that die before the Lord comes again have not missed out on anything. They will receive the reward. As a matter of fact, they'll resurrect before those who are alive. So in essence, they'll kind of go up first. But do you remember how he closes this paragraph? In other words, once he says, now that you're not ignorant, now that I've taught you a clearer, a better understanding of the second coming. Remember how he closes this? Look at verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. In other words, when we truly understand the second coming and we heed or obey the teachings that would lead us to be prepared for the second coming, we ought to be of comfort. Oh, this is good. Everything is okay. Now notice when he says, I don't want you to be ignorant. The Lord does not tell us every detail about the second coming. Tonight, if we wanted to open up the floors and you could just ask whatever curiosity you have, odds are very good we would have more questions that we don't know the details to than questions that we do know the details to. So when he says, I don't want you to be ignorant, what does he mean by that? He is never saying in scripture, I will tell you everything you could ever wonder about the second coming. But he does say this, I will tell you everything you need to know to be ready for the second coming. In other words, you don't have to be ignorant about how to be ready. You don't have to be shaken in mind. You don't have to be troubled. Comfort yourself. Don't be ignorant. Comfort yourself. Well, with that in mind, uh, the, the manifold class to help us get to know each other better and to study God's word more, we gather once a month in homes. And it might, depends which week it is, Monday night or Tuesday night or Thursday night. Well, this past Monday night, we were in the Hundley's home. And, and I'm, I'm usually not the teacher, but I was asked to be the teacher that night. And so... We were, I, I was thinking about what would be a good thing to cover. And these two passages I've just read to you in Thessalonica, or in Thessalonians, it, it came to my mind, you know, if, if we shouldn't be ignorant and knowing what we should know should bring comfort, and we've been studying that a lot on Sunday mornings, 
Why don't we just go to a passage where literally the whole chapter, in essence, is the Lord saying, don't be ignorant. So, we begin studying Matthew, the 25th chapter. It's three paragraphs, three stories, sometimes even called three parables. And each one is not to teach tons of detail. Each one is to focus in on a specific thing. Well, we studied the first one and we had some good points made and some great discussion. We studied the second one and we had some good discussion, great points. And Rob Brown speaks up. And he says, I tell you what I can understand about the second coming now that we've studied these two stories. From story one, I see the fact that we'll live in such a way that God knows us. And from story two, I see the fact that we'll live in a way that we know ourselves. I was like, if you can give me a third point, I can preach that. <laughs> and so we covered the third story. And the third story, <clears throat> Jeff Lania spoke up and said, well, there's your third point. We need to live in a way that we know others. And so I left that Monday night and I got to thinking about that more during the week. I thought, wow, that will preach. I mean, that's, that's what those three stories are. So you know that we're going to cover three stories now, but we can't cover the details of three stories. But we can learn some very important things about the second coming of the Lord that, that ought to bring comfort to our life. And if it is not comforting, it's because something is amiss in our life. And so go with me, if you will, to Matthew, the 25th chapter and the Bible that's there in the pew. If you need to borrow one, it'll be on page 875, 875 in the Bible in your pew. And notice how in Matthew, the 25th chapter, the first parable that Jesus teaches is of like the kingdom of heaven shall be likened to 10 virgins. And these 10 virgins were waiting on the bridegroom to come. Now, truthfully, we don't know exactly how their culture was in this, but what seemed to be was that as the bridegroom would come, the women would be out and usually apparently it would be at night. They would come and, and remember the wedding feast would last for like seven days. And so the women would meet the groom and they would have the lamps and they would in a sense provide a processional where it would be a lighted way. It would be something beautiful as they entered in. And then when they would enter in, in this story, the door would be shut and everybody that's going to be a part of this wedding feast, they would be there together. Now keep in mind, in several times in scripture, the groom is Jesus Christ and coming for the bride who is the church. And so we have here in this story, we have five women who are called wise and five who are called foolish. Look with me if you Will. And notice there in verse two, it's a very simple description. Five of them were wise, five of them were foolish. Well, what's the difference? Verse three, those who were foolish took their lamps and took no oil with them. But the wise took oil in their vessels with their lamps. But now notice this about the coming of the bridegroom. While the groom, the bridegroom was delayed, they all slumbered and slept. Why do you think he puts this in the stories, delayed? Well, because he was delayed, now you could have went up to any of those women and you could have said, when's the groom coming? And every one of them would have had to say, I don't know. You know, we, we really thought he would have been here by now, but he, he hasn't come yet. Ding, ding, ding. Does that sound like what we've been studying in Thessalonians? They apparently thought the Lord was going to come very soon. And he didn't come very soon by their standards. And so he had to write to them and, and help them get things in order. 
That's what this parable is about, is you get ready for the Lord's second coming. If right now we said, how many of you have been baptized into Christ? You came up out of that water and you know what? If the Lord would have come right then, what kind of timing would that have been? But he didn't. So now we say, okay, what are you going to do since he didn't come right when you were baptized? Are you going to be the five wise that live in such a way that you are always prepared for the groom to come? Or are you going to be a part of the five foolish? That if he came right now, you would be begging from someone else. Notice in this story, so the midnight cry in verse 6, behold, the bridegroom is coming, go out to meet him. So see, for five of those, that was really good news because they had been waiting on that. But look in 7, then those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps and the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. The wise answered and said, no, lest there should not be enough for us and you, but go rather to those who sell and buy for yourself. And while they went to buy, the bridegroom came and those who were ready went in with them to the wedding and the door was shut. Afterwards, the other virgins came also saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. And he said, answered and said, here's the point. Assuredly, I say to you, I do not know you. We need to live in such a way that the Lord knows us. We were ready on his return. We had the lamps lit. We had sufficient oil. In other words, we kept our lives prepared. And when he came, he knew us and we walked right in with him. And those that did not make it, they were not prepared. They did not keep themselves prepared. He says, I didn't know you. You know, most parables are taught to make only one or two points. We usually do an injustice to a parable when we try to get every phrase to represent something. What was the takeaway? Well, look at the, the summary here. Verse 13 is the takeaway. Watch therefore, for you know neither the day nor the hour in which the Son of Man is coming. The takeaway is we are supposed to live every day with a readiness and a watchfulness. In other words, this watching is I'm watching in a prepared way. Why are you keeping yourself ready? Why are you watching with readiness? Because I don't know the day, the hour. I don't know when God's coming, when Christ is coming again. But I know this, he's coming again and I'm going to live every day as if it's today. Why? Why? Because when he comes... I want to be known by God. I want to be known as His. The second parable is the parable of the talents. It's one of the most known parables in Scripture. It is about, beginning in verse 14, a man who is a wealthy man, and he was going to go on a long journey. And he was going to leave his resources with three individuals to take care of his wealth so that number one, it would be there when he returned, but he was relying upon them to even increase his wealth while he was away. So he gave to one man five talents. A talent was a measurement of weight and that measurement was a very large measurement. It's believed that it would be a 75 pound measurement. So imagine if, if one talent was 75 pounds of, and we don't know what it was of, but what if it was of gold? What if it was of silver? Now think about the man that was given five talents, 
five allotments of 75 pounds of gold. That would have been equivalent in their day, according to some estimations, a talent would have been equivalent to about 6,000 denarii. That would have been the equivalent to 20 years salary for the average person that day. So the one talent man was given the equivalent of a 20 year salary. Two talent, 40 year. Five talent, 100 year salary. This man was a wealthy man. And he left each one a great amount of his resources to use to create greater investment. But now there's something really important that we need to see in this that seems to be the takeaway. Look in verse 15, how he distributed it. And to one he gave five talents, to one he gave another two, and to another one, and, and to another one, to each according to his own ability. And immediately he went on the journey. Did he give the five talent man five talent because he loved him more? Did he give it to him because he, he liked him more? He makes it very clear. This isn't at all about who God values the most, who God loves the most. This is about not putting upon someone more than what they can stand, what they can deal with wisely. This is God being gracious, but also placing responsibility. He looks at this one man and he knows that he has the ability to take care of one talent. So he doesn't give him two. He gives him one. He sees this man and knows he has the ability to take care of two talents. He knows this man has the ability to take care of five. Now, what are they going to be accountable for? Well, you remember they each did what they did with their talents. And very quickly, you can notice that the five talent traded his and he gained another five talents, verse 16. And the 17, the two gained two more also. But in 18... The one that was given one went and dug in the ground and hid the Lord's money. After a long time, the Lord of those servants came and settled accounts with them. You see, this is the time that he's going to hold them accountable for the fact that he gave to each one as he knew they had the ability to handle and so he's going to hold the five talent man accountable. I know you had the ability. How did you use it? Two talent. I know you had the ability. How did you use it? One talent. I know you had the ability. How did you use it? What, what's the talent? Well, in our English language, the word talent, because of this story, has evolved to simply mean what we call today talent. Oh, that person's so talented. Listen to them sing. That person is so talented. Look at their athletic ability. We understand why it comes that way. But probably the way the Lord was teaching this, it was literally everything that he gives us. Every resource that he gives you is a part of the talent. What kind of health has God given you and how have you used that health? What kind of, of network has the Lord given you and how have you used the network? What kind of resources? What kind of income? What kind of property, what has God given you if you were just to back up and look at your whole life, the fullness of it? It is a fact. I can't explain this. I don't, I don't doubt God in this. It doesn't shake my faith at all. But it's a fact that there would be some in this room that you're one talent 
It's not because God loves you less. I can't explain it. I don't understand it, but you're one talent. And there's some in this room that are two talent. There's some in this room that are five talent. I don't know. I don't know why God allowed you to be born in the home that he allowed you to be born in and the country he allowed you to be born in and, and the resources that he gave you. And I don't know why, to use the English word, I don't know why you're so talented. You know, I, I see some guys in ministry and I immediately think, that's a five talent guy. You name anything a minister's supposed to do and, and he can do it all. Why? God doesn't tell us why, but he tells us it's true. Everybody in this room has been given something from God and he knows because he gave it to you. And so he's gonna hold us accountable individually for what he's given us. Now notice when it said the five talent went and traded, that word is a word that's the idea of go to work. It's, it's not the idea of, oh, I'm going to take my five talents and I'm going to go down to one investor and I'm going to sink it with him and then I'm going to just do whatever for however many years. And, and when the, the master comes back, I'm going to go back and say, hey, he's back. Give me. Oh, great. We made 10 talents. The idea of traded is the idea of I'm going to work it. I'm going to go here and work this, these resources. I'm going to go here and work these resources. Oh, I've gained some more. Now I'm going to go here and work them over here. And it's the idea that he stayed busy. The two gained likewise. But what did the one do? He didn't, he didn't waste it in the sense that, oh, I blew it. There were some things I wanted and I took your money and I spent it on me. He didn't do that. As a matter of fact, when the man was going to return, he wanted to make sure that he had the talent to return back to him. So he buried it in a safe place so that when he came again, he could go and he could bring it and say, here it is. You see why the second point is you need to know yourself. It's hard to wisely use something that you don't even know what it is. Do you know the health God's given you? And do you know why he's given it to you? Do you use it for his glory? You have a car? Two? Three? You have a house? A job? Do you have friends? How many friends? Do you have a street you live on with neighbors? Why did God give you all that? Why did God give you the neighbors he gave you? Is there no meaning to it or is there a certain reason why God placed those people on each side of you? Why did God place you in the workplace he placed you in? Why do you work on that floor? Why do you work in that office? Why do you work in that? Did God give you that as part of your talent? Part of your resources? Why are you born into the family you're born into? You know, we're going to be held accountable. We're going to be held accountable for all this. You remember the five talent man, when he came back, he was judged and, and what was told to him in 21 was well done, good and faithful servant. The same thing was said in verse 22 to the two talent. But then in 24, the one talent came and said, Lord, I knew you to be a hard man reaping where you've not sown and gathering where you've not scattered seed. I was afraid and went and hid your talent in the ground. Look, there you have what is yours. What was the problem with one talent man? He was afraid. 
What does fear cause us to do? It paralyzes us. It paralyzes us to do and accomplish what we could. And we start thinking, well, well, if I act, I'm going to fail. And if I act, I might do it all wrong. So what becomes, when we are afraid, what becomes the feeling of safety? The feeling of safety is don't do anything. Let me just take and bury this. And when he comes again, I'll, I'll get it right back out. But you notice that didn't go over so well. So now what does the person do? I'm not taking the blame. Master's not happy with this. Master, in essence, is saying, one talent man, what's the problem? Imagine this. One talent man says, you. You're unfair. You gather harvest where you don't plant any seed. Problem's not me. Problem's you. If you operate out of fear, you bury talents and you blame other people. Did that describe anybody here? Because that's what happens when we operate out of fear. You know, when you work with people, it's always interesting to listen to the people that complain. They usually complain about something over here, but the problem is almost always something over here. The complaint is causing you to look over here. The root of the problem is the one complaining. There's something amiss in their life. And a lot of the time, it's fear. What do we need to do? We need to know ourselves. We need to know what God has given us. And we need to know how God would expect us to use it for his glory. And so God looks in verse 26 at this one man, and he doesn't praise him at all, but instead he says, you're wicked and you're lazy servant. In verse 29, for to everyone who has more will be given and he will have abundance. But from him who does not have, even what he has will be taken away. Cast the unprofitable servant into outer darkness. There'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Story one, you need to make sure that God knows you. Story two, you need to know yourself. Story three, you need to know others. There's always people about us that need help and God expects us to help them. The third story is a scene of judgment. In verse 31, we see that the Lord's gonna come again as holy angels, all of them are gonna be with him. He's gonna be on the throne of glory. Verse 32, all the nations will be gathered. Try to let that sink in. Everybody that's ever lived will be there. But what he's gonna do, the emphasis over and over is a separation. In 32, he'll separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats and he'll set the sheep on the right hand, but the goats on the left. And then he's gonna have a different message for each one. In 34, the king will say to those on the right hand, come you blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was stranger and you took me in. I was naked and you clothed me. I was sick and you visited me. I was in prison and you came to me. The righteous will answer and say, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you and thirsty and give you drink? When did we see you a stranger and take you in or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick and in prison and come to you? And the king will answer and say to them, assuredly I say to you and as much as you did it to 
one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. But then in 41, he says, those on the left hand, depart from me, you cursed into everlasting fire, prepare for the devil and his angels. And he describes this same scene of, of people that needed things. And he says, except he's saying it's him. And he's saying, you didn't do these things for me. And notice in 40. In 44, they're going to answer and say to him, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or stranger or naked or sick or in prison and did not minister to you? And he will answer to them saying, surely I say to you and as much as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. And these will go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. It's simple to understand, isn't it? God says, let me show you a scene of judgment. And you know the ones over here on the right, you know one of the characteristics that every one of them are going to have? What is it, Lord? I want to be ready. I want to be on that right side. I want to hear blessed of the Father and enter in. I want to be over here. And he says, it's going to be people that constantly look to those that were downtrodden and they helped them. And he says, when they did, they helped me. And you know, their question was, Lord, we don't remember doing that for you. He says, when you've done this, the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. Well, I just don't see people that need food around me. I live in Mount Juliet. I just don't see people that need clothing. I just don't see people that are strangers and need somebody to take them in. I don't, I don't really see even a lot of sick people. With kindness, could I urge you to open your eyes? They're all around. Brother Doug McCormick was talking to me this week. And we're on just a little bit of a different train of thought, but, but he said, you know, we probably don't talk enough about the sin of omission. You know, those sins that we commit, it's not because we did something wrong. It's because we didn't do something that was right. It's right to look around and see the people that are hungry and do something about it. It's right to look around at the people that are just constantly sick and not just think, poor pitiful soul, but do something about it. The idea of visiting here is to go with open eyes. What difference could I make if I went and tried to offer encouragement by my actions, by my words, by my presence? We need to go to prisons. We need to go to the downtrodden. And it can't be out of an arrogant spirit that says, I've got my life all together and I've got everything and I'm just, I'm just coming down to you lowly people. But instead, it ought to be the same motive that tells and why God would tell us to do this. And the motive is there is equal value in every soul. The hungry person right now in Middle Tennessee, God loves them as much as he loves you. The homeless person in the county next door, God loves them as much as he loves you. And the question that we all have to ask ourselves is do we love them as much as God loves them? We need to know other people. 
not have our eyes closed or our blinders on so that we really don't know what other people are going through. It's all right to get involved in other people's business if the reason we're getting involved in it is to make a positive and a powerful impact on their life. I want to encourage you. Whoever taught you that you don't need to get involved in other people's business was a selfish person. Because there's a lot of people, if we would take the time to invest our life into them, we could help them. And in so doing, they would help us. The Lord tells us that it's not good to look towards judgment and be ignorant. He says that could cause people to have troubled minds, shaken minds and troubled spirits. So we say, okay, Lord, I don't want to be ignorant. Teach me something. He says, let me give you a whole chapter. First story, I want you to know how important it is that I know you. Be ready when I return. The second story, he says, I want you to know how important it is that you know yourself. I've loaded you up with resources. Use them for my glory. Story three, I want you to slow down a little bit. And I want you to look around a little bit. And I want you to see the people that are hurting and have compassion on them. And just know that when you help them, Jesus would say, you've helped me. I have no idea if the Lord's coming tonight at nine o'clock. But if that thought scares you, you need to do something about that right now. And if you're not ready for the Lord's second coming, you're not living life the way it was designed to be lived. The best life we can live is to be longing for the coming of the Lord. We're about to sing a song of encouragement and let's make right whatever we need to make right. Let's walk out of here as unified people, the people that are waiting on the second coming of God. If you need to be baptized, if you need to be restored, if there